Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? We were delighted to get special guest Lou Prosperion, the developer of Earth Dawn, one of our favourite games. He's got lots of great insights into what was going on at FASA behind the scenes. But, of course, this probably means some spoilers, so if you're new to Earth Dawn or only partway through the many books and adventures that are available, be warned that the following content has some details that you may not yet be aware of. Having said that, if you're still worried about spoilers for a game from 1994, that's on you, listeners. The sound quality suffered quite a bit, as it sometimes does when we record from the colonies. But, thanks to the help of Ian and Sam from the Brainwaves podcast and some endeavours of our editing cobbles, we've done our best to clean it up, and I don't think it sounds too bad in the end. But apologies to our guest, and of course, you, our listeners, if the sound's not as good as it could be. But we've done what we can, and the content, as I've previously hinted at, is solid gold. So here he is, the man himself, telling us all about Earthdawn, what was going on behind the scenes, the plans for the future that sadly never were realised, and all other kinds of interesting details and tidbits for fans of Earthdawn. Delighted to welcome to our podcast, Mr Lou Prosperi. Hello, Lou. We need to start with a bit of a pronunciation guide for the UK listeners. So first of all, how, how do we say your name properly? Because it's one of those things I've only ever read. I've <laughs> never heard it said out loud. <laughs> so have we got a, a Lewis? Is it a Louis? Is it a Prosperi? I'm, I'm sure you've heard it pronounced every which way. How's it actually go? Um, so Lou or Louis. Ah, but okay. generally Lou is fine. For my first name, it's Prosperi. You have the last name exactly right. Oh, fantastic. Right. So we've got that one nailed. Good. Right. That's in the book. But the one that's been confusing us all is, is it FASA? or Phaser, or FASA. So when we were talking about your ancient history, who did you used to work for exactly? <laughs> Corporation. FASA. Oh, okay. That is based on um, a bit from the, the Marx Brothers movie Duck Soup, the Predonian mm-hmm. Air and Space Administration. That's oh, it. brilliant. Oh, I see. I've lost a pound in a bet now with my co-host. <laughs> I heard the story that it was pronounced Phaser because the first role-playing game that Phaser did was Star Trek, and it was named after the Phaser. No, no. (laughs) I think, actually, that might be the first role-playing game they did, but they had done Battletech. Technically, they did Battle Droids. Yeah, true. And then they got some legal issue with Lucasfilm, who didn't want them to use the word droid, so they changed it to Battletech. Wow. Oh. There we go. Right, we're learning stuff already. This is good. This is educational. <laughs> and we're getting your memory cells warmed up as well, because I guess, Lou, you're going to have to take us back, mate. So can you, can you give us a bit of a potted history about like your um, your illustrious gaming CV, which when I look at it up online now is a few pages long. You did the lot, right? Yeah, I did a fair amount. I got involved in gaming first uh, in the mid-80s with a role-playing game called DC Heroes, published by Mayfair Games. I was a big fan of DC Comics, not especially into games or role-playing at least. And I learned about this this game, and I went and found a copy and sort of taught myself how to play. I was was a first-time game master, so I didn't start with a group, and then I introduced this game into a group of existing players that had played D&D and a bunch of other games. But I was familiar with this game. And very in familiar with the comics, so I started as a as a as a game master for that game, which which grew a lot of popularity in our college um, game club. It, you know, 
there were like three or four different games running every week. And, and I, I get a little obsessive about things. And so as I, you know, once I bought the basic set, I bought every supplement as it came out that I could find. And I noticed that they were all written by different people or mostly written by different people. And I thought they can't all work for this company. How does this work? So I basically tracked down the company, called them and found out that they use freelance writing. So I wanted to sort of get involved. And I ended up writing a bunch of content, well, submitting a bunch of content for their free newsletter that they did. So character write-ups and little things like that. I mean, they probably only used two or three or four pieces. But I got involved in playtesting. I did a lot of playtesting for some of the things. So I got to know some of the development folks there. And then they, uh, so Mayfair invited me to go with them to the International Superman Exposition in 1988, which was the 30 year, 50 year anniversary of Superman. So it's a big comic convention. They had a booth. And I went yeah. and I ran demo games. And based on that, they then invited me go to Gen Con and be with their booth to run demos of DC Heroes there as well. While I was at Gen Con, I basically went up to the president, uh, a gentleman named Darwin Bromley, um, and said, I want to work for your company. You know, what could we do? And uh, turns out they needed a warehouse manager. And so I ended up moving to Chicago to work in the warehouse at, at Mayfair. And I helped work on the, the second edition. Uh, did some playtesting. I helped work on the Chill RPG. So while I was there, they had acquired Chill mm -hmm. edition. So I ended up doing that. I, I only stayed there about a, a year, actually, less, a little less than a year. I started in the fall and I left the last, the next summer. Uh, some personal stuff happened. But, so I, I came back, but I had made some connections in the game industry by then. Mm -hmm. um, so I did some more playtesting of DC game and the Chill game. And that's how I got to meet uh, Greg Gordon, who mm -hmm. had designed DC Heroes. He had then moved on to design, and I, I got to meet Ray Winninger too, um, and some of the other folks inside um, FASA, I mean, inside Mayfair, uh, Jeff Leeson and Tom Cook, some of the Jack Barker, that the main editors, Jackie Leeper was one of them. So I got to know Greg. Greg had gone on to work at West End Games to develop Borg, and I became a playtester of that as well. I play-tested, not the first book, but we play-tested Denial Empire and Isle, the Fantasy Realm, and the Horror Realm, and the Cyberpunk. You know, we, we, had we helped play-test a bunch of those. And um, that led me to writing some short adventures for Tor. So they did a handful of short adventure collections. And so I wrote, I wrote one about uh, the area called The Living Land. And actually what happened was in that first one, there was supposed to be six adventures. One of the authors uh, didn't complete their assignment on time. And so they said, I did mine on time. They said, you want to do this other one? So I got to do two in the first one. Um, and then when they did a second adventure collection, I did one in that as well. And then that led me, I ended up writing a book called The Storm Knight's Guide to the Possibility Wars. I don't know if you're familiar with Torg. Absolutely, yeah. But um, that was sort of this player's guide that they talked about, this background book, a book to help you develop the black background for your character. So if I could just interject there, you mentioned quite a bunch of playtesting. Now, uh, by today's standards, someone like Wizards of the Coast, for example, playtest with hundreds of people or or that sort of thing. But back in the sort of time you were talking about when it was playtesting, was it just like a few little groups where you perhaps the only playtesters? How did it, like, I guess without the internet, it was more kind of like take, getting sent notes and writing them down and then having to post back your feedback, I guess? Yeah, I, it was, they would mail you a paper manuscript with some guidelines about what they, the kind of information they wanted. 
mostly a lot of it was um, adventure playtesting. Right. And so I would, like with the DC Hero stuff, I would run the adventure as written and then send back some detailed feedback. And I think it was some of the feedback that I sent that sort of convinced some of the people that I, I don't want to sound special or anything, but that I had, you know, I looked, approached things from a way that made sense in terms of game development and game design. Yes. Yeah. The right questions. It wasn't just, this wasn't fun. It was, I, I don't think this is working right for this reason, et cetera. And so in terms of the playtesting and Torg, it, I, you know, I don't think it was quite as organized as it is now with Wizards of the Coast, certainly. Mm. You know, um, but I think at the time, what they would do is, you know, the developers had networks of people and they would probably send the packets out to three or four or five groups of people or lead people whose job it was to test. Right. And, you know, when we were playtesting Torg, it was a big secret. We had to sign in non-disclosure <laughs> agreements and... And in those cases, a lot of that was setting playtesting, which is so it was like a world book. So, for instance, the Arosh source book for Torg or the Nile, the Nile Empire. So, I would read it. I would also make copies as much as I could, you know, and you know, paper was expensive and too for the players. And we would try to do an adventure or two set in that world to try to use the creatures and the boy, you know, the the weapons and the equipment and the vehicle, whatever the things were that were in that setting, we try to use them, abuse them, you know, and try to exploit them. Sure. To sort of see what's working and what's not. Yeah. And so that's sort of how a lot of that went. Uh, and playtesting is actually what ended, got me involved in Earthbound. Um, so I, I did some of this um, work for, for, for Torg, for West End Games. Meanwhile, Greg had moved on to work on um, Earth Dawn with FASA with Chris Kubasik, Christopher Kubasik. So Greg was uh, brought on to do the, the rules and the game system, and Chris Christopher was brought on to do the, more of the setting content, and he wrote a trilogy of novels. And so I got involved in playtesting that pretty early, uh, very, very early, long before the first uh, draft was done. And along the way, they realized they needed an in-house developer, and at one point, somebody there said, why don't we ask Lou? Because, um, you know, he's been involved. And along the way, I had also signed a contract to write an adventure for Shadowrun, too. So I ended up writing a Shadowrun adventure uh, called Kill, A Killing Glare. I went to, went to Chicago, interviewed with Sam Lewis, who was the president, and Tom Dowd, who was a person in charge of development and, uh, and folks there. And I ended up being offered that position. And so that's sort of how I got into, into my position with Earthdawn was to play testing. How did you think it was going to go, Earthdawn? Because if you've, you're like pre-first draft, are you aware or, or, or what sort of sense did you have of, of what they were attempting to do in that very early stages of the game? Well, I knew, you know, obviously they were trying to break into the fantasy market. Mm. You know, they had done Battletech and Shadowrun, and, and honestly, outside of Shadowrun, Vassal was sort of a black box to me. Mm. You know, Battletech really wasn't a thing I was that into. Some of the people in my game club really thought it was fascinating, but filling in little circles on the sheet and you know, <laughs> it, all that just wasn't really my thing. And so, you know, I knew obviously the D and D had this very predominant hold on the market. It was a lot of that, and and I still was pretty new to the business side of things. You know, I had worked at Vapor for a while in the warehouse and I had done some conventions and things. And, and after I'd gone to that first convention, I actually went to Gen Con every year 
either running games on my own or running games for other people. A couple of times I ran events for West End Games. Mm. So I started to build connections and, you know, and uh, a little network inside the industry. But, you know, at the time, I don't think I even realized the the audacity sort of of the, of the let's let's take on, you know, Bassel. like Christopher Kabasik once, I think, jokingly characterized it, you know, as one day Jordan Weissman woke up and said, hey, let's make a fantasy game. Let's let's fight against, you know, go up against. TSR and D&D directly. And maybe it was as simple as that. You know, they had Shadowrun and maybe they said, let's do the, the history of Shadowrun, you know, the the earlier part of Shadowrun. You know, if you're familiar with Shadowrun, you know it's yep. presumed that magic. When they talked about magic, they never said magic showed up. They always said magic came back. That's right, yeah. yeah. Always, always implied right from the very beginning mm. that we've been here once before. So, I, you know, I sort of knew it, but I didn't maybe appreciate the the scope of it i was you know put in charge of this new game my goal was to make the game as much fun as it could be you know and a couple of things that we i don't want to say struggled but we debated was you know so as you know earthdown uses all the dice all the dice dice by design yes because when they started working on it they said people like multi multi multi-sided dice they you know that's a a trait so they did it we already had them (laughs) Right, right. Well, and at one point, Greg had actually worked up an alternate version of the step table that used only D8s. Wow. Like, you know, I'm leaving this to you. Here's both. What do you think? And I you know, went back to the original notes that I had seen in the development. I said, we stick with the polyhedrals just because that was part of the, the plan right from the beginning. Because you know? you're Victor, that you talk about the way you came into gaming. I think, you know, um, you may be unusual in not having said I came into gaming through D&D in 1981. You know, yeah. you talk about how you ended up in DC. I mean, to me, that sounds like a rare story to not have that that common background, that set of polyhedral dice, perhaps even. Maybe you didn't own any. I don't know in the 80s. <laughs> well, then I did because I had gotten to play, I, I'd gotten, you know, played D&D with some people, uh, ran a D&D campaign. And, 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 you know, I mentioned my sort of obsessive behavior. In addition to buying all the DC Hero stuff, I actually started buying Forgotten Realms, oh, wow. original Forgotten yeah. Realms, Grey Box, and all of those. Even though I didn't understand how D&D worked, when it got to the mechanics, none of it really made any sense to me. Mm. But I still read through some of the material from a world-building point of view, just because it seemed like a fascinating setting. So I, you know, and I, and I had quite an extensive collection at one point. I think at one point, my game collection was like 1,500 items. Wow. Wow across a bunch of different systems a lot of that later you know later in the in my time in the industry i traded you know i would go to conventions and and or do trades and contact friends and say hey i'll send you these five books if you send me these and, and things like that but i bought a lot of it too because i wanted to learn and i wanted mm. to understand how different game systems work you know like i remember at one point photocopied the pages of skill lists from like every game i had to try to step back and sort of figure out what is the point, you know, how do these all work? Is there a common thread here? And, you know, really there isn't. If you look at them close enough, they're all different, right? Um, but just with an eye towards maybe I'm going to build my own game, one, design my own game one day. How do how do all these different games deal with skills? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that, I mean, getting into Earth Dawn, one of the perceptions, maybe you can let us know if it's a reality or not, is the 
one of the most common things you hear said about it is that it's D&D done right. So from your perspective of a man who used to photocopy all the skill sheets, was there a, did you have other games in front of you and go, right, how can we make, how can we make our combat the best combat there is given all of these things that are out there? How can we make our character advancement our own thing? Was there a reaction to the gaming around you at the time? Well, so I, by the time I got involved, most of that, if it happened, it probably already happened. Um, right. Um, in the earlier development of Greg, you know, as, as Greg and, and Christopher with with Jordan and Ross, some of the other, and Tom at FASAB, you know, they were all involved at the very beginning. A lot of that, I think, had already sort of been worked out, you know, how things were going to work. So, you know, Greg had settled on, for instance, a Fibonacci series in terms of advancement. I think the idea that, you know, D&D done right or D&D that makes sense or whatever phrase, you know, like sure. a little uncomfortable with done right because clearly D&D has done some things right. Yeah. <laughs> it's done right for itself, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, it's okay. You know, the notion that there was a reason for, for these un- vast underground places where there was treasure, you know, certainly was a deliberate design decision, you know? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the thinking that went into this is, okay, so if we have a world where there's, you know, all sorts of treasure and, you know, and there's underground dungeons or caverns with where people used to live and monsters and trapped, what sort of culture, society set up would lead to that. And so that clearly was part of the development early, early on in the game. But, but that was before I, I sort of got involved. You know, I, my, my role was sort of to take this rule setting and, and material and uh, develop it, flush it out, you know, c- clean it up, if you will, and then continue the, the, the uh, development and growth of the world in a consistent way to you know, tell a bigger story. You know, so one of the ways I sort of thought about what we do, you know, as a publisher, I look at it as we are sort of telling the story of the Earth Dawn world, and we're doing it by exposing, you know, pr- publishing and producing products that focus on, you know, the big picture as well as particular things or specific stories. And, and you know, once we sort of introduced our meta plot, then we're sort of starting to, to tell a, a, a narrative across this world. And, you know, and if you look at sort of the development history and the product history, you'll sort of see that we start, you know, with a big picture view of Bar Save. And for those of you who are listening that may not be that familiar with Earth on Bar Save is the default sort of area and setting of the game. And, and I honestly don't know how familiar with Earth on your, your general listeners are. So that's why I say that. And, <laughs> we're maybe a- they all know it perfectly, then I'll then I won't provide any more information like that. Well, we're 130 episodes in, and I think we've mentioned Earth Dawn in every one of them. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. so you're among friends. <laughs> you know, if we start with sort of the big picture, looking at, at Barsave, what we sort of did was zoom in. So we did in the Barsave campaign site, big picture. Then I think the next big piece we did was Parlink, the Forgotten City. So we sort of moved the lens over to the northwest corner, northeast corner of the you know, and let's look at Parlink. Then we zoom back, and now let's go on the in the southwest and go look at Sky Pointing by Vane. And then, oh, we'll look at the Serpent River, and then right into the center where Thrall is. So we sort of, I always viewed it as moving the camera lens, if you will, to the part that we wanted the, the audience to pay attention to. And then, you know, when it came to, you know, we had laid a number of sort of threads and open-ended things, like in the very first adventure, we tossed out this thing called the ever-living flower, 
right, which we we knew was important to the elves. We knew Queen Alicia cared, but we were careful to not say what it really was and why. And that gave us the opportunity to make it something else later. And, you know, and it turns out that that actually ended up with an interesting life that, you know, gets referenced in some Shadowrun products. And, you know, it kind of took on a thing on its own. But I tried to keep track of all these like dangling things that we had introduced so that later we could come back and revisit them. So like later in, I believe, Prelude to War, we have the theft of the ever-living flower where it's actually stolen from the Bloodwood. Sounds legit. I can't remember now if that's then or if that was in the Barsaber War product that we had been planning. But anyway, the point is, you know, right, we tried to leave some things in the setting, some events or some artifacts that we could then revisit and play with later to sort of make the world feel alive. Mm. So how did you, um, I think it's one of the things you've got to try and balance when you're doing that kind of thing about having some kind of overarching box story or plot and you're only zooming in or out on certain parts of the land. It's kind of how much of um, a thought did you have towards individual groups and GMs who are out there who kind of like obviously want more information and are waiting for the next sort of set to find out what's next and what information there is, but kind of want to let the players explore things as well. Was there any kind of, uh, how do you, do you even consider that, if you know what I mean, when you're designing a setting or where your arcs are going to go? Do you think about, well, we're going to have to leave some blank spaces so that individual groups that are running this without the book that's going to come out in two years' time have got somewhere to go and kind of fill in blanks themselves? or So we tried not to answer every question, fill in every area. Uh, at one point, one of the products I thought would be fun would be a map set, which would basically be to take that bar save map and break it into, say, 8 or 16 or whatever number makes sense, smaller maps, and zoom in and provide you know tributaries, little creeks, smaller bodies of water, villages, towns, just a bunch of other stuff, and not provide a whole lot of context for it, but just, hey, look, here's three more villages with names that you can then use. And at the time, uh, Tom Dowd, who was the sort of lead of the development department, he was in charge of the Shadowland game, he sort of objected to this idea. Now, there was a couple reasons we didn't do it. One was his objection, but another is... As simple as it sounds, that would have been a very expensive one to produce, just because mm-hmm. you have to draw the maps and you have to have artists paint them all, and it's just all art. And so that gets, and it's all color art, so that you know could get very expensive. And it's questionable how well it would sell too. You know, like a little tough question. But Tom's main objection was that it wasn't actually for players, but that it was filling in too much, and it might actually inhibit future writers and future contributors because. You know, in this particular, you know, let's say 100 square mile area, if we name five villages or towns within that and an author wants to write a novel or set a novel or set a, a thing there, now we've told him what to do and it's sort of constrained him in the future. Yeah. I didn't really appreciate that argument at the time, but I've come to realize that he was right. Um, you know, one of the practices that we used was something that we, we literally in the office called vagifying, which was to purposely not define, you know, and, and the guideline was always to provide as much detail as necessary, but only as little as possible. So you, right. need, to tell, you need to tell people as much as they need to know to be able to use this you know, village or setting, but but only as little as, as you can. You know, as little as you can is, you know, so there's this fine line 
to make it usable, but to not completely hamstring things in the future. Because by by adopting this way, then it, it, you have more possibility for development later on. You know, did we deliberately stay away things for individual players and groups? Not specifically. You know, sometimes my attitude at the time was, I have to play too. You know, like I, yeah. I, I get to do this too. We, you know, if you want us to continue to publish content, you're going to have to accept the fact that at one point we're probably going to contradict something you've done. Yes, of course. You know, if if you are running this game, for instance, and you are running a campaign in Parlane before we did the Parlane box set, but you really want information about Parlane. I think you have to accept the fact that there's going to be a few differences in what you did than what we did. Mm -hmm. You know, and as a game master and a consumer, I think we all sort of know that it's aggravating when it happens. To <laughs> and I think one of the things we, we, you know, we all tend to do is, oh well, I'll just, I'll either ignore those pages or I'll tweak them or I'll. Yeah, it's, it's rough. I mean, I've got a player who always wants to know what what's not known yet. So if I showed him a map of Barsave, even if we knew. If we have perfect knowledge of that, the first thing you want to do is walk off the map one way to find out what's there. You know, just like some people just have to kind of like want to know everything that's going on everywhere all the time. But uh, yeah, there's going to be some mystery otherwise. <laughs> I had a friend who told stories about that. Like, uh, you know, people like they get to the edge of his map and he'd say, No, when you look over there, you see giant hands moving mountains around. And, <laughs> <laughs> you see the gods playing with the iron landscape. You should stay away from there. <laughs> Lou, were you working from a from much of a setting bible at the start? I mean, how far ahead had you gone? Did you did you always know that there was going to be a war with the Therans sometime down the line? Only in that it seemed inevitable, but we had yeah. not plotted out specific things. So we this the setting bible, if you will, would would have consisted of content from the existing products that we had published up to that point. Right. right? Okay. And so you know, when it started, I had the rule book and I had the bar save campaign set. Some of the stuff didn't fit in the rule book, so we slipped it out, put it in the game master pack, or moved it into the companion. Some of those early products that sort of, you know, you can sort of tell we were trying to figure things out because the looks of the products are different. And, sure. You know, um, and so, but what I tried to do actually was create a document, a Bible document that had, you know, lists of specific important named characters creatures, cities, and towns, and I tried to keep it up to date as we went, just so I would have a reference and not get lost and not contradict myself, you know, so the products wouldn't contradict themselves over time. Because it starts to get pretty unwieldy pretty quickly, a few books for a few years, you know. Um, so, you know, originally the game did not have a, a meta plot or a story or narrative part of the story at all. It was you know, what you would expect. So we do our basic campaign set and then we find specific important, cool places and, and dig it a little deeper. So we do Parlane. We knew that would be a cool place right from the outset because even the descriptions of that just from the Longing Ring novel, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys have read all the novels. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but just from that, it was very clear that, that would be a lot of fun, right? So that could be... Very sure, fun. yeah, yeah. And then... Know, and we needed to talk about the Therans a little bit more than we had. So let's do Skypoint and Vyvain and really explain the Therans' presence in Barsave. And then, oh, well, I guess now we should talk about Droll since it's pretty pivotal. Uh, you know, and then along the way, we had done the Serpent River, which, you know, as a brief aside, in my opinion, is one of the best books in 
the original Serpent River book is one of the best books in the Earth Online, and I think it's one of the better fantasy role-playing game supplements that's ever been published. Correct. Uh, right. yeah. yeah, I agree. I worked on it, but just my, you know, the, um, the gentleman who worked on it, his name is Sean Rhodes, I think he did a fantastic job of bringing this culture to life in a way that's very compelling and interesting. And, and they are, the Serpent River sort of is like the lifeblood of Barso, so it just plays this pivotal role, and I think he just did uh, a great job with that book. And then, you know, along the way, we had also done um, a books that I sort of categorize as the what's it like books. So those are the two name giver books and, and the adept way, which was so, you know, we can talk about orcs, but, you know, let's do an essay from an orcs point of view that explains orcs in better, you know, so we did, you know, and we debated, you know, I thought, could we do one book with all eight races? Could we do a box set with a little pamphlet for each race, you know, just a couple different ways. And we ended up with the two books, volumes one and two, you know, sometimes the happy, shiny people and the, uh, you know, the pretty, the pretty races and the not so pretty races, right? So it turned out it was like the, the elves, the women's humans and uh, the scrang, and then the orcs, trolls, obsidian and dwarfs, you know? So it just worked out that way. It wasn't necessarily by design, but those were again, and, and we deliberately wrote them in first person point of view to try to, to try to get the reader into the mindset of these people. So what is it like to be an elf? What's it like to be a human? What's it like to be an orc? Um, also, that gives us a little bit of wiggle room in terms of the, um, the authoritative nature of the narrator, right? So we assume they're being truthful and correct. And, you know, and, and I would say 95% of what the authors of these various books think and speculate is probably true, but we kept that 5%, maybe 10% off to say, oh no, he's, you know, in my mind, oh, he's completely wrong here. He's making this up. He has no idea what he's talking about. And eventually we'll, we'll tell them that. But for now, let's let everybody think this thing is the case when it's not. And I, you know, I can't think of a specific example. The Dragon's Book is where that sort of happened a lot, right? And yeah. Was, uh, very late in the game. But, you know, when we would get to these these points of of speculation, there was always sort of a yeah, it's probably true the way he's describing it, but but leaving us that open is opening is still good because then you can play later if we need to. I like the little uh, rivalry was there was sometimes with the side notes where Merox, the the grand librarian, says something, and then one of his underlings would be going, "Well, that's rubbish. I've been there," or something like that, or the kind of to and fro between academics, mm-hmm. which kind of gives you license as the the GM to decide what's true, what isn't, I can add some more misinformation here, and the, the kind of, yeah, and just the, like, the fun element of some people sat in a dusty library, like, arguing amongst themselves about what it's like near the Death Sea, having never been. But they've both got very strongly held opinions about what it's actually like. Right. Well, and that, so, some of that actually was our version of Shadow Talk, mm-hmm. or some of the Shadow Run books had this Shadow Talk stuff where people would comment and things. We couldn't do it to the same extent because you know, the conceit was that these were dusty tomes in a library. Um, and in fact, if you think about the fact that, that people would scribble on the margins of those is sort of outrageous, but it's still sort of a fun, it was a fun thing to play with, to be able to put these little sidebars in to say, you know, no, this is right at all. <laughs> yeah. See, to, to my mind, you've mentioned Serpent River there, and that's that's one of the books that I always mention when someone says, what's a good idea of a source book? Um, because it's got the kind of tour of Barsave, even, even more arguably than like the, the Barsave campaign box or anything like that. I think it gives a better view of 
I think in early days, when you look at Earth Dawn, there's perhaps because it's this undiscovered country and all the mountains have been moved around and, you know, you've come blinking out of your cares, there was perhaps uh, not quite enough information in a way. Like, like as a new gem, you didn't know what to do. Uh, and as you see, you zoomed into some areas. But when you got the Serpent River, that kind of took you on a tour around the country almost of Bicep because the, the river obviously wraps in a big reverse sea around the whole of Bicep. But it also includes stuff specifically to the Scrang, like you said. He talks about river trade. Um, and then every paragraph has got an adventure idea in it, more or less. You know, whenever I read through that oh, book, right, yeah. there's just like a seed in every single paragraph. And you, I, I think you, you're spot on that, that if, if more books were like that, more like a travelogue or a, a, an interesting things to see around Barstead kind of thing, that's a much better way of doing it than getting, you know, a big hefty tome with 500 villages listed in exhaustive detail. That's just not going to be as interesting for a game, right? Right, yeah. So Earthdawn had a... Incredible. Looking back now, I, I can't believe how many books came out for Earthdawn. For maybe it was just the nineties, and a whole lot of books were being released. But was there a sense that there was an industry then? I mean, I know it's a bit long time ago, and maybe things are, are clearly going to be very different now with the proper advent of the internet and everything else that's going on. But if I look at my shelf of Earthdawn books, it's really, really long. Was it? How busy were you on a daily basis getting these things out the door? <laughs> right. So when we started, the first few years, the basic operating sort of guideline at FASA was for each game, and we had three running at the same time. We had Battletech, we had Earthdown, and we had Shadowland. We would do between eight to ten products a year. That was sort of the, the guide, the main objective. Mm-hmm. And those would generally be a mixture of big and small. So we did not, you know, we weren't going to do 10 source books, but we could do four or five source books and four or five adventures for shorter, shorter books. Um, so that's why, for instance, we have Parlink and Parlink Adventures. And we have Skypoint and Skypoint Adventures and Thrall and Thrall Adventures. And I don't think we did a Serpent River Adventures book. No. We probably should have, but there was enough in there. And so that was sort of the plan. And at any one time, you know, you, we're proofreading the layouts of, of one book, editing another, and then preparing outlines and notes for another, and then brainstorming or talking about ideas for yet earlier ones. So you probably have three or four going at once. And we try to, you know, sort of plan ahead, you know, a good year in advance just because of the timeline involved, right? You know, it's, you know, we don't, back then, especially, we didn't turn these things around real quick. And I don't think that's changed in the industry. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I started, the industry, or at least FASA and some other companies, were still, to a point, um, proposal-driven, where we would get proposals from writers and select them, and those would get slotted into our production schedule. While I was there, that sort of philosophy sort of mutated and changed into, you know, we have to be more decisive and, and involved in picking the products we want to do. Like, you know, I, I think it's important that we're more deliberate about the order in which we explore the, the world of bar save than the order in which we happen to get proposals. Now, that said, there's a couple books that were proposed that might have been a lot of fun had they turned out uh, for various reasons they didn't. So, for instance, so a number of names of people that you know wrote a lot of the early stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We paid attention to the credits. You know, Nigel Finley had written a bunch of stuff for us, and he sadly passed away in the yeah, yeah. 90s. But Robin Laws wrote par length and a handful of pieces for us. Robin wrote Infected as well, which I think is one of the archetypal Earth Dawn adventures. Yeah. For me. 
Um, and then, um, yeah, infected. He, he did infected. Uh, John Terra actually, who wrote uh, uh, Mr. Betrayal, had was writing a whole lot of stuff at the time. And Shane Hensley mm-hmm. uh, actually wrote the humans section of Earth, uh, Legends of Earthbound, or the the name givers of Varsity. And he had a proposal for the Badlands that was would have been a lot of fun, but he had to go <laughs> and form a game company and get busy and do other things. Yeah, cursing. Well, they're wearing Stetsons. <laughs> Peter Atkinson actually considered writing for Earth Dawn. Wow. Magic the Gathering happened. So there's a handful of things that, that may have happened had, you, you know, thing, the industry gone in different directions. But but at the same time, I do think it was the right thing for us to sort of decide, no, this year we want to do, you know, Roll North Kingdom and then we want to do whatever it is, you know. So, for instance, as you probably know, at the end, when Earthdawn at Bassa was canceled, at least, we were building towards this war. One of the reasons we, the last few books that we did were the Orphanation of Tarafad and the Crystal Raiders and then the Dragons was to make sure that we did a book, at least one book, sort of highlighting all of the major players that were going to be part of this war. So that when we said in, you know, in our Bar Saber War book or books or whatever was going to happen, this Crystal Raider moved to this this orc tribe, there would be source that we could point people to and say you can learn all about the Ironmonger mood or Ironmonger clan, or I don't remember all the names. In Karapad the Orc Nation or the Scott Crystal Raiders of Barse, you know. And so the the point we had already done Thrall, we had already done Thera. So we wanted to do in Serpent River. So we covered all the main players. So that now they're all now we understand who everybody is. Now let's see how well they play together. And so um, you know, so we would try to figure out what is the next, you know, four or five or six books we're going to be doing. When do we want them to come out? You know, if we want a 140-page book to come out in July or August for Gen Con, well, we need four weeks for printing, and then we need eight weeks for art. And then, you know, you start backing it all up, and before you know it, you're in September of the year before, and you have to have an outline together and, and reach out to authors to have this stuff you know, underway. You need it finished by Tuesday, it turns out. <laughs> right now. Was a little bit later. Yes, exactly. Like I guess I had to have that outline done last week. Um, Oops. <laughs> what? Um, what? At one point, Earthon's uh, sales had started to slow a bit, and so the decision was made to cut it in half. So the last two years or so, we only did four books a year. And we did, you know, and, but they were bigger, so we cut out the smaller ones. Which is why, again, those last few books, you know, orcs and then the trolls and then the dragons would have been another big one. We we sort of cut out some of the adventures to make room for bigger books. Yeah. And then some of my time got taken up with other things. I ended up being the webmaster of the company and the tech support guy. And, you know, when somebody got a new machine, I was the one who helped set it up and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So how, how big, um, in my head, going back to when I was younger, when Prelude to War came out, which is more of an outline rather than a, a perhaps previous products, which were literally scenarios or more nailed down, Classical adventures, as they expect from the role playing world. But Prelude was more of a campaign outline saying these are broad events that are going to happen. Here's some things that will happen in loose detail, but I'm not going to nail it all down for you, Jim. It's up to you to fit this into your ongoing campaign because we don't know where your characters are right now or what your world looks like. It felt at the time like that was something new. I'm not sure whether it was or other products had done something similar. But um, in your mind, was that something like 
a new thing to try or was it um, you know just a natural progression of what had gone before? I don't think we were the very first ones to do it. I mean, I think in D&D, the um, Time of Troubles was a series of novels and adventures that sort of changed the world so that the Forgotten Realms worked in second edition. So I don't think we were the first one, but I don't think, you know, meta plot at that level had been that big a thing. So we were fortunate to be in the timing when, you know, it was before White Wolf really got involved in it and started doing a lot of a lot of their games. When we did, you know, speaking specifically to, you know, Prelude to War, which I think is probably the book that you're mostly thinking about when you talk about that, you know, yeah. we had laid some seeds and laid some pipe and some plots. We hadn't done anything with it. And that's when we said, you know what, we need... So we realized that we wanted... The Therans were there, and we sort of wanted to highlight the tension and do something. Yeah. So we wanted a war at some point. And so at one point, basically, we um, at FASA, we had a summit where we, Robin Laws came in, Sean Rhodes, the gentleman who wrote The Serpent River, Jordan and Tom and a couple of the other developers. We got together for a couple of days to just talk about Earth on what we might want to do. And, you know, I had had this idea about, wouldn't it be cool if the Therans took one of their behemoths and just plopped it in the middle of Barca? And I originally had thought, you know, just, you know, further north and east of Skyport and Vivane, just a little bit further, sort of like, sort of building slowly. The next stepping stone, yeah. I said, what if they put it here? And Sean Rhodes, of all people, right, the guy who wrote the Serpent River said, no, no, here's where they put it. They put it right in the middle of the Serpent River, right here, on top of this light rock. His idea, like, what if they plopped it there? I'm like, wow, that's old. Like, that's cool. And so that was sort of one of the ideas that we we said, okay, we're going to do these events that sort of start to lead the lead uh, to more conflict in the setting between the major players, right? The Therans are going to make sort of this bold move. Farsafe is going to respond by saying, hey, wait, no, we really are independent. We're going to fight. Dragons, of course, are like this because they want to sort of spank the Therans anyway. So at the time, I do actually think that no one and I, again, I had bought a lot of content. I, I bought games. I still bought a lot of games and read a lot of games and kept up with. I didn't read every word of everything, but I kept pretty, pretty um, current in terms of what games were going on and what was happening. And as near as I knew or could tell, no one had really done a book like that before, where they introduced these events, these big events that the players can can either be involved in the immediate uh, repercussions from or can follow up on. But they don't necessarily dictate how it impacts the campaign. You could just say, oh my, so all of a sudden, King Naden, I mean, King Verilis is dead now. Oh my gosh. And so if you happen to have a campaign where you have a good relationship with the royalty or the, you know, the crown and troll, you may get involved in investigating this or trying to figure it out. There's certainly fallout from this big behemoth crushing, you know, completely landing in the middle and basically taking over a big chunk of this, uh, of this area. Or, you know, the, the rebirth of Karapad, the nation of Karapad. All of a sudden, you know, there had been an orc nation that wasn't existing. Now the orcs were both ran, you know, a bunch of tribes, you know, roaming around. Now all of a sudden they're going to coalesce again and be a nation. That's going to have an impact. We could, you know, if we're in the Southwest Barsay, that's going to part of our. So the idea was to sort of s s 
start to activate the universe is what we basically call is the term. Yeah. It's time to. So Battletech had been doing that for a while. Battletech had always been an active universe. Every year there was a novel to change things, and the source books that would follow would sort of allow people to play out the battles that would have resulted in these major events. So we decided to activate the universe, and this was the way we wanted to do it. Um, and I don't, again, I don't think anyone had really done a product quite like that before. Um, that's one of the ones that I'm particularly proud of in terms of the game line. That must have been an interesting meeting to get to. I think, like you say, I think the process has done similar sort of things, but it was more of that, um, like, baby steps almost, like, you know, like you said, the, the Theron Empire, like, just move the next tranche of the way into Barstow. That kind of idea of, let's just throw things right in the middle and kill this king and then bring back this character that we brought, brought in an adventure two years ago and make them important again and all this. There was a lot of, like, really big punch you in the gut kind of moment saying like look things are happening you need to react to this what are you going to do right. about it Krista? almost any group <laughs> in any part of Barse to hear the news the king is dead oh my god <laughs> that's major or the Therans landed this thing here oh my god that's major um, or the orcs are deciding to get along oh my god that's <laughs> you know any of those things are big enough to catch the attention of virtually any group. You know, even if you're a group that's just living in parlane, just trying to make your way, those things are still going to impact you. And so that was sort of the idea to activate it this way, but, but to let the game master sort of figure out how the players could get involved. And we provided adventure framework that they could use specifically, but they could also, you know, we also tried to provide other information about the, the consequences of this event and how you could work it into your game. Hmm. Yeah, that, was, that was a lot of fun, and then of course we needed to follow up on it. Do you remember, Lou, whether at the time that you were pressing the big go button on the meta plot and the campaign, did you know that Vassa was going to be ending Earthdawn at that point, or was it close after? Do you remember the timeline? I certainly didn't think it was happening then. Right. So the day that I found out that the Earthdawn game line was closing was June of 1998. Mm. which was a year after Prelude to War had been published. So right. when I went, when that happened, when they made that decision, I was working on proofreading the final draft of the final layout of the Dragon's book. I had just, mm-hmm. I think, done a, an index review or an edit review of the Dragon's book with the editorial team. I was working on, I think I'd already solicited content and some work. People were started to work on Bar Save at War, which was going to be the next big book. Uh, and I was plotting out the next year because so the Dragons was going to be our summer release. And then Bar Save at War would be October, November sometime. And then we were going to do four books in 1999 that were going to follow up on the out on the basically a follow up to the results of the war itself. Um, and so, no, I, I sort of had no idea. You know, we, didn't, we weren't plotting towards a particular thing. You know, I would have loved to do Bar Save at War, but in retrospect, I realized there were some probably fundamental problems with the plan for that book. But I really would have liked to get the Dragon's Book published formally. That would have been a nice way to... Mm. Right up there with the Serpent River, I think the Dragon's Book, despite the lack of art and the sort of the very quasi-finished state that it was in in terms of production, I think it's one of the better books in the line also. It sort of starts to really peel away some of the secret layers and to sort of show the people who these power players are and the way they think and why they think what they think. And some of these things that have been going on, I think, start to make sense when you you know read them in the context of the Dragon's Book. Yeah, 
I mean, you know, for the best part of a decade, though, you, you were responsible for putting out so many books. I mean, you very nearly got there. You very nearly got your fingers over the finish line, really, didn't you? It was just Bar Saver More and Dragons was kind of like end of a season, I suppose. It must must yeah. seem that way now in retrospect. And, you know, you were doing novels and miniatures as well at the same time. I'm still absolutely in awe of the amount of stuff you're poking out eight to ten books a year is like a monthly magazine except they're not magazines are they it's just it's a huge amount of content <laughs> so i mean you know it's and those things did eventually see print didn't they which i guess takes us to the next stage in earth dawn story which is first edition comes to its close and then then we get into the realms of red brick and fans and other editions and you're still around at that point or had you gone off to do other things so when Bass made the decision to cancel Earthdawn, I ended up getting a job as a technical writer with a software company with which with which Bass I'd had a number uh, a relationship. So a friend of mine that was in um, in my game in my Earthdawn game and actually who played a big role. Did you ever see the Earthdawn CD-ROM that we made? No, I don't think I did. So we did a promotional CD-ROM. I could get you one. I could probably send you one. I have a handful of them. Cool. <laughs> um, if you have a CD drive on a computer anymore, which you know no one does, I'll, I'll find one. <laughs> we basically created an HTML digital version of the first edition rulebook and put it on a CD with a few other things. There was a character generator and a couple other bits, right? And and at the time. We were working on this virtual miniatures concept with another company, um, and we were going to provide content. Anyway, we put it in Shadis Magazine, and we printed like thousands of these things. One of the people who helped us do that, who did all the HTML conversion, was a friend of mine named Steve Hammond. Bassett wanted to get into the online sales business. Now, remember, this is 1998. Mm. So having an online store was a big deal then, was hard and complicated, and it wasn't, you know putting apps on your phone, you know, it wasn't yeah. a deal. So he worked for a software company that was in the utilities industry actually, but wanted to get into e-commerce. And so he and I got our bosses to talk to each other and work out a deal where InStep Software would build Fast's new website and online store. So when I found out I was laid off, I called Steve. I said, in two weeks, you have to start talking to other people. I won't have a job here anymore. Do you guys need anybody who has some basic HTML skills? Because I did at that point, you know, and he said, no, but we need a technical writer. I think you'd be good at that. So I ended up getting a job as a technical writer for, for Instep, not for him, but working with him. And then, you know, w when they canceled the game, you know, Fast actually con considered selling it to a couple people or licensing it. You know, mm. Jackson Games expressed some interest, Atlas Game expressed some interest. And so I sort of stayed involved in those conversations like, hey, maybe I can parlay this into a gig and yeah. give them. Those never went anywhere. We moved to Chicago for this job, and I had gone back to school. Once I graduated from school, we decided to move back to Massachusetts, where we are now, to be with our families. Our son had been born out there, and we wanted him to know his family and grandparents. So I got another job out here, and I, you know, I stayed peripherally involved, um, paying attention online as best I could. But for the most part, I was out. Um, then I got an email from some folks from a company called, some people that were forming a company called Living Room Games to tell me that they had acquired their license to Earthdawn and they were very excited to maybe, you know, have me not necessarily work for them, but, you know, consult with them a little bit or, 
and so I did, you know, they sent me a couple things and I read them and I, you know, they, I think some of them felt an obligation of sorts to sort of finish what I had started mm. before they took it in their own direction. But I don't think they had the experience to do it well. Mm. Right. And so, you know, they started by doing a book called Path of Deception, which is an adventure. Then they did their second edition game. And then they did their version of Bar Save at War, in which they changed a number of things from the original outline. All right. And then they didn't change some things that I was going to change. <laughs> kind of like, um, so, for instance, in in my original outline for Bar Save at War, I had this idea that the Earth Dawn airship should come back. Mm-hmm. Should come back in the middle of the climactic battle. That would be kind of cool. In talking with it, talking with, about it with some folks at the office, I came to realize that was a little too deus ex machina a little bit too convenient. Maybe we shouldn't do that. But it stayed in my outline. And when they took the out, when they developed their version of the book based on that outline, they kept that element. You know, and I think that's what I what I mean with the you know, lack of experience or, again, I don't want to say that I'm, you know, special about it, but they didn't, they never got to the point where they realized it wasn't a good idea to have that in there, right? You know, and maybe it was fine. You know, I read it. And so they sent me a copy of their manuscript and I read it and I made notes, some extensive notes and some parts that I really objected to. And they ignored most of it, <laughs> which was their right, you know. Yeah. So so I don't know if you're familiar with their version of Bar Save at War. A little. It wasn't. I, I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was great. But to me, I think I get what you're saying, that I read it and thought, this doesn't feel like Earth on I said, like, the, it, it had the trappings of the setting, but you could tell that it wasn't a continuation of, from what had come before. It was kind of like there was touch points, but it felt you could definitely tell something different had done it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Basically, there was a handful of events. And the challenge that was going to happen with that book was getting the player characters and the individual campaigns involved in a, in a more organic way. Like in, Bar- in Prelude to War, they could react to these events. You know, you could be involved in investigating who killed the king, or you could be a scout at the at the life rock, or figure out that, or you could go and try to talk to Krakus Gron, or you know, talk to the people in Orc, the Orc Carpod, whatever. In this, it was a campaign where certain powers and player characters were not involved, like they're not the king of gold, are dictating we're going to attack the life rock. You know, we're going to attack the behemoth, and we're going to attack Skyporn, we're going to attack Vyvain. You know, and so they had to sort of be scooped up in that and it would it could very easily feel a little railroady yes and so we we hadn't gotten further far enough along in the process to even think about that it was still very conceptual but that was sort of the road one of the roadblocks we were going to hit had we gone there and so basically the events were the attack on the behemoth and then they would Bar save the forces of Bar save would basically marshal their forces, and there was a couple other things too, right? So there was the Declaration of Separation, uh, uh, right, which was basically the Bar Saving version of the Declaration of Independence, and they would spread the word out and try to get as many of the main powers to sort of sign on to this alliance, right? And we had it all planned out, you know, like Iopus was gonna not help, right? And Jerus would not help because Iopus was pressuring them, and Europa says, no, we're staying out because. We're, you're going to find out about us in a year or two when we finally get over there and figure out what's going on. But, you know, but Travar agrees and, you know, the Bloodwood says, sure, maybe we'll help. You know, 
But then there was this concerted attack on the behemoth, and then the idea was they marshaled their forces and have a concerted attack on Skypoint. And the dragons basically come in and say, we'll take care of Vyvain for you. You handle those others, we'll take care of Vyvain. Because, you you know, we don't think you could do it all. We'll, we'll help you with this. And their solution was to magically uproot the horror cloud. There was a place called Stormend and move it over Vyvain. Deliberately move it. And, and people are like, wow, would they really do that? And my answer has always been, yes, of course they would do that. They, they don't care. They, they want what they want. I sort of likened it to, to making a deal with the mob, right? Like, yeah. if you make a deal with the mob, they may use methods that you're horrified by. They may get, the, get you the outcome you want, but the methods are, are horrible. Yeah. Uh, right? And so, and it was going to, I mean, it was going to have devastating consequences, right? But, but they're like, you wanted us to help. This is how we're going <laughs> to. Um, the living room games guys didn't think the dragons would do that. They instead came up with this alternative idea where they would think the dragons would use ritual magic to create a big elemental earth dome around Vyvain, basically isolating it from the rest of the campaign, right, to prevent them from participating and sending troops to help. And what that does is it actually is such powerful magic that it attracts the horror cloud by accident. Was their sort of? Oh, okay. <laughs> they still wanted the horror cloud, but they didn't think the dragons would actually do it. The problem with that solution, in my mind, was the goal of the dragons is to eliminate Vivian from the equation, not to put a. Because so, are they going to leave the dome up forever and kill them? Because once you take it down, then there's thousands of Theron troops are. St it's still a problem. Like you, you know, that mm -hmm. didn't solve the problem, the solution in the same way. So, I wrote to them and I said, I, I have a real problem with this. I don't think this works at all. And they, again, that's the part that they sort of ignored. They, and and the notion to me that the dragons made a mistake, and that they, you know, they didn't realize that such powerful magic would cause the horror cloud, but. You know, they'd be willing to do that, but they wouldn't just draw it. You know, it just didn't make sense to me. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's one of those as well where, I don't know, what I immediately thought of then is like, we're going to put a big dome over this so nobody can get in or out. It's like, okay, so you've taken an interesting piece of the game world and now so that no one can interact with it. Like, I don't see how that's... In both versions, the horror cloud ends up coming to Vyvain and basically laying waste to it. What happens sort of behind the scenes is so... There's this theory that the Therans have a network of very powerful magical batteries, a lattice of them scattered across the globe, and that's how the magic level is being maintained. That basically they, they created these big magic batteries, these locusts they're called, made of orc, halcum, and other stuff, and they buried them in various parts around the world, and, and that's how the magic level is being sustained. Right. Interesting. Right. And there may be controlled by these three big orc halcum pillars on Thera. Maybe. The idea was there was one of these batteries underneath Vyvain. And when the horror cloud gets there, two of them don't play well together. And kaboom. And basically, horror death magic runs across the city. And the city's level melted. Blah. And the idea was that it would become a city of the dead. And it would give me an opportunity, give us an opportunity to really explore undead in Earthbound. Yeah. Like so, we had Cadaverman. We had a couple of references, but we never treated it in any sort of comprehensive, ex 
explore, you know, we never really explored it. You know, like there's demi rates and you get a paragraph and there's cadaver man and you get a paragraph and, you know, but this would give us a chance. And then the other thing that would allow us to play with the vampires. So there's in the Earthbound Companion, there's an example of pattern magic that uses a vampire as an example about a clove of garlic as a pattern item or something. And that's one thing I really, really regret because I never wanted to talk about vampires. I realized after, like, no, we shouldn't talk about vampires because in a in a setting in world where blood magic is so powerful, vampires would play be a particularly interesting thing to explore. Mm. Creatures that live on the blood, life, energy of other creatures in a world where blood magic is used, there's just a lot of narrative space there, right? A lot of stories to tell, a lot of stuff to explore. So I sort of regret having that example, even though it was a mindless little example, but, you know, so, but the idea was this would actually give us a chance to explore what vampires might be like. So one of the books that we had planned for 1999 was Vivane City of the Dead. Living Room Games did that book. And then they had access to all of my notes. I had box, a couple boxes of notes and Tassa had sent them to them. And they had seen my notes for 99. I had plans for three books. It was Vivane City of the Dead. It was Pawns of the Dragon, which was an Iopus book. Oh, yeah. Iopus. And, and so the thing that you learn in the Dragon's Book that you might know is that the secret of the Denerastus magical family is that they're the offspring of a dragon, right? Which was one of those ideas that came up in the office one day, like, wow, what a, wouldn't it be cool? You know, like, what's their secret? Wow, what made me there the offspring of a dragon? And then that just sort of spiraled out and became a very strong thread through the whole Dragon's Book, right? Half the book is written by this, this outcast dragon. And so there was an Iopus book, and then there was going to be actually Scytha, the Dwarven Kingdom, where King Naden was going to die in Barsavia War, causing a civil war, and some people would exit it, leave Thrall, and go and try to refound Scytha. But it was going to be a bit of a challenge. So, it was, you know, that, that was big picture ideas, and we didn't get very far with any of those. But, um, but I think Living Room Games felt like this obligation to sort of do the Bar Save at War story bit. And so they did their version. They did Bar Save at War. And then they did a follow-up called Bar Save and Chaos. Yeah. Which was the book that sort of followed up on some of these threads. And that's where they sort of talked about what um, Vivane was like after, pardon me. And, and then they wanted to get on to their own thing. Um, mm-hmm. They started their book about the discipline, their series of books about the disciplines, a couple other adventures. And then... It just, for whatever reason, they didn't go any further than that. And I heard, heard rumors and bits about other things that they had planned that I'm very glad they never finished. <laughs> it seems odd that they, they almost felt obligated to speak to you and, and sort of almost get your blessing and benediction and such, but then when you sent them notes, decided they didn't want to listen to them, which is it's a strange having feeling the obligation, yet also wanting to ignore what you're saying seems a bit of an odd I actually wrote a preface or forward or whatever to Barsave, to the version of Barsave at War. And I was, you know, I disagreed with it, but I get it. It's theirs. They want to do their thing. Sure. Like, like you know, if we keep talking about it, I disagree with a lot of the specific, some specific things they've done in fourth edition, but I know Josh has, Josh is the right person to be in charge. And I, you know, I, I don't agree with them, but I don't think it's bad. You know, personal, it's just me. You know, but, yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, each, each GM in running their own version of Earthdown is going to do the wrong thing anyway, no matter what anybody writes. You know. Right. And, and I know there's also people that, you know, whether they liked it or not, it was new Earthdown stuff. You know, whether they thought it was all it could be, it was still new Earthdown stuff. Yeah. And that's better than no Earthdown. <laughs>
yeah for some people right you know so then red brick formed and they did their classic did they do classic first or third edition first classic first i think print on demand was kind of new i remember they did some stuff with that too right and that was largely um james sutton and um and Karsten Dam, mm-hmm. and I was involved with them. I mean, I remember one day Karsten happened to be over here, and James was here too. And James and Karsten and Josh Harrison all came to my house, and we met for a couple hours about stuff and their ideas and their plans. And you know, and I think the unfortunate part in most of the history of what Redworth did was, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, they just kept redoing stuff. They just kept reprinting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. They did. The two versions of the rules, they repackaged all the existing stuff, and the only one or two things really new that they introduced. And the only one that really stands out is Cafe and Cafe Adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then they also, you know, they worked with his name is Hank Woon. He did uh, a Pathfinder or a D20 edition or a Savage World edition, too. And so, you know, that there was some other uh, challenges that happened internally with the Red Brick situation. And then that became Facet Games, and then that eventually, you know, and they were going to basically continue. As I understand, they were continuing where Edward had done. Then there was a shakeup, and then they decided to do fourth edition, and that's when sort of Josh got involved. I sort of have served, I think, as a um, a backdoor, like, hey Lou, what did you ever think about this, or what did you ever plan for this? Like Josh has contacted me every so often and said, hey, what about this, or what do you think about this? Not in any sort of like I'll do what you want, but just to make sure that he understands the intent. We've had a couple conversations, and, you know, and I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, but he and another gentleman named Dan, I don't know his last name, have started a an Earth on podcast called the Earth on Survival Guide, where they're drilling into stuff, and uh, it's interesting because a couple episodes, you know, a couple points, Josh has said things like, "I know Lou is listening," and so. <laughs> I sort of have this mixed part of me wants to, you know, stick my nose in and tell them what they're doing wrong. and <laughs> But it's not mine anymore. No. Um, and it's not necessarily wrong. It's just not what I would have done. And 20 years down the line after FASA pulled the plug, you're still getting calls from people like us saying, come and talk to us about Earth Dawn. So it's still living, still going. Yeah. That's, and that's something that's been extremely gratifying and flattering is that every so often I'll, I'll still hear from other people too that are, you know, that say, thank you so much for the work you did on Earth Dawn. It's such a great time. Or, you know, like I'll be, like I'll go on game sites like RPG Net or whatever. And you know, like, so there's a thread now about your favorite top 100 role playing games or top 25 games. And I'll go on and actually, a fair number of people have Earth Dawn in their top 25 or whatever. That's still very, very satisfying and gratifying. And whether or not they even ever played first edition doesn't matter to me because I know there's enough of the core stuff there that my contribution still is part of what, you know, if somebody starts with fourth edition last year and they didn't ever look at anything I ever specifically worked on, I know that I contributed to what they did enough that I can still feel proud about that. It's a hell of a legacy. Yeah, it's certainly um, it's certainly fired us up from university days onwards to many decades later. You know, it's it's still one of our games that we talk about when someone says what are your favourites it, it always ranks up there it's, it's just I think it was when we say it was um, D&D done right it, that's not to be pejorative against D&D it's just a kind of it, it, it really made sense it was 
I guess in a world now where there's been so many fantasy games and the term fantasy heartbreak is thrown around quite a lot that someone tries to do their own version of a fantasy game, but it's just another D&D reskinned. Earthdawn felt like in a market where you've already got Dungeons and Dragons dominating, uh, another really good and unique fantasy game which had its own place and its own, you know, could forge its own legend to, to coin an Earthdawn phrase. Yeah, and I, I'm still very proud of the work we did. I, I'm particularly... You know, when I think back, I think my bigger contribution was in terms of the world building and the setting building and the sort of the, the overall big picture. And to me, that's more important than the games. So, you know, the mechanics, I mean, I should say the game rules, you know. You know, and one of the one of the interesting observations I've made about fourth edition, some of the things that they've changed are things that to me puts a preference for uh, predominance on the rules and the game balance as opposed to the world. And so in my view, the game rules, for the most part, describe how the world works, not necessarily define how it works, right? You know, some of it is the mechanics, you know, like, so rolling dice and hit, you know, to hit and some of that. One of the things I like, you know, that I think is sort of charming about first edition is it has a more organic feel to it, I think. For instance, the spell lists amongst the, the, the magicians, right? Like, if you look at the spell list from first edition versus fourth, fourth, I say this not having read it all, I don't even own any of them, you know, but from what I know, fourth edition feels more designed than sort of a natural outgrowth of the world developing, it, mm-hmm. right? Whereas in first edition, you had some weird situations where a wizard might have a spell that really belongs to an elementalist, but so what? You know, that's okay. You know, and so there was, it wasn't, the lines weren't quite as clear, but I think that was okay. And I think it sort of gives this sort of charm, this like organic feel to it. You know, and there's a, there's a handful of other things. Like, so one little rule thing that we introduced, and I think the man, magic, the, the magic source book that really sort of highlights this idea is, is the idea of named spell. What would happen with me when we were talk when we do some of this was I, I would sort of realize a, a sort of consequence of the metaphysics of magic and say, okay, so if naming things gives them, you know, permanence and importance and whatever, and spells have a pattern, then maybe they can be named and made permanent too. But then from a game balance point of view, I can see how it could be completely out of control, right? Like, I'm going to wait, I'm going to cast this really kick-ass version of Improved Karma on everybody. I'm going to name it and make it permanent, and everybody's got, you know, step eight karma or whatever, you know, whatever it's going to be, right? Okay, I get that. That's a problem. But to me, the fact that the rule, the physics of the world should allow named spells overrides the fact that there might be game balance problems with it. Right, yeah. Yeah. Right, because I'm, and I got a big discussion on on RPG Net and the thread about this. My point of view is that the game master is my ally in terms of maintaining control over the things he allows and doesn't allow. Right, the game master has to be able to say no, sorry, it's going to completely mess up my game if you allow if that happens. Or he has to say, all right, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it too. So next time you run into a, a badass Theron magician, he's going to also have step 12 karma. Mm. As a GM, you've always got bigger elephants as a GM as well, right? So your characters cannot be like, okay, we've all got this high step karma. And you go, well, that's cool, but the, you know, the horror's got twice that. So, you know, like, and, and he can share it with all his minions and he's got hundreds of, like, 
if, if players are trying to win the game almost, like the GMs always can make up bigger numbers, that's not an issue, is it? Right, right. And, you know, and like, you know, the, I, the story possibilities around this name spell thing, just, and this is just a simple example, are, are, you know, we use those, I think, if we use anchored spells in, in the plans for Barsave at War, the Theron Behemoth had these anchored spells, you know, we just use some of these mechanics to explain in game terms how they had a force field, basically. Right, yeah. And how the how the characters could penetrate the force field, get inside the get inside the care, you know, get inside the fortress and actually sabotage it from the inside or, or whatever. There's a handful of places in the in the first edition rules where I sort of went with the, this is cool and it makes sense in the world. Yeah, there's potentially some game balance issues, but the game master has to step up and decide that he's not you know, the game master gets to say no. You know, when I got this job, I had been, so I had known Sean, the guy who wrote the Silver River book. I had been working on an outline for a book about role-playing design theory, RPG theory and stuff. And I had this sort of set of, Sean had introduced to me this idea he had of the meta rules of RPGs, right? That, you know, number one, his meta rules, right? One, they're all, we're all doing this to be entertained. First point is we're all doing this for fun. The second was together the interactions of the players and game masters sort of create this world. And the third is that the game master is sort of the conduit and the decision maker for what is real in that world. Right? And so, like, have you ever been in a campaign where, you know, you play on a Saturday, for instance, and you pack up and then you go home and then you come back next Saturday and a player says, oh, by the way, my character did blah, 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 blah. But never talk to the game master. Yeah. yeah. My view is, no, you didn't. If I, as I'm the game master, my view is no, you didn't until you tell me what you wanted to do, and I say, okay, that makes sense, right? So the game master has to be the one to sort of say, yes, that's okay. So your books are proposals to the GMs. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Listen, Lou, so grateful for your time. Twenty years down the line from when <laughs> I probably last rolled a D8 in anger. Who knew I maybe would have needed more D8s at one point. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're super grateful that you could spend some time going back over the mists of time for you your memory stands up very well sir very well indeed <laughs> better than mine does for that sort of length of time um so thank you so much for coming and talking to us about earth dawn today oh you're very welcome thank you for asking it's, it's always fun to go back and, and chat about this stuff it was a it was a great time and I'm, as i said i'm still you know, very proud of, of the work we did. I still have this love for the game, even though I'm not really playing it or doing much with it. It's still just, you know, something mm-hmm. I put in so much of myself into. I listen to that other podcast. You know, when I see hints about Earth, I, I started listening to a actual play podcast, but it just got to be a little too much. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm happy to happy to have come, and, and thanks so much for having me. This has, has been a whole lot of fun. Yeah, thanks very much, Lou. It's good, good to go that memory lane. And uh, it was only last year I brought out Earth Dawn to one of the conventions recently in the UK. So who knows this year I might have to wheel it out again for the fresh new faces that have perhaps weren't even born when it first came out. I actually went to Gen Con UK, I think it was 94, maybe? Wow. Probably yeah. The year after it came out, it was still relatively new. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, I had a couple of good friends that worked at Wizards. Um, but yeah, we went and did some demo games and stuff, and it was that Pontins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it well. That's that's when we were throwing away magic cards. We didn't yeah. think that 
whatever catch on, did we? <laughs> yeah, people wizards were trying to give people free packs of cards and they were just throwing them in the den. It was ridiculous. They'd be worth millions now. <laughs> now it turns out they were giving away packs of alpha cards, right? Which that's right. We're basically putting a thousand dollars in the bin. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Leo. It's great to speak to you. Well, it was great to meet you guys, and uh, please be in touch on Twitter, social media, whatever. Uh, happy to be in touch. Oh, 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 oh,